0: where was witch street by stacy omonier 1877 to 1928 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by peter tomlinson in the public bar of the wagtail In Wapping, four men and a woman were drinking beer and discussing diseases. It was not a pretty subject, and the company was certainly not a handsome one. It was a dark November evening, and the dingy lighting of the bar seemed but to emphasise the bleak exterior. Drifts of fog and damp from without mingled with the smoke of shag. The sanded floor was kicked into a muddy morass, not unlike the surface of the pavement. An old lady down the street had died from pneumonia the previous evening, and the event supplied a fruitful topic of conversation. The things that one could get everywhere were germs eager to destroy one. At any minute the symptoms might break out, and so... One foregathered in a cheerful spot, amidst friends, and drank forgetfulness. Prominent in this little group was Baldwin Meadows, a sallow faced villain with battered features and prominent cheekbones, his face cut and scarred by a hundred fights. Ex-seaman, ex-fish-porter, indeed, to everyone's knowledge, ex-everything. No one knew how he lived. By his side lurched an enormous coloured man who went by the name of Harry Jones. Grinning above a tankard sat a pimply-faced young man who was known as The Agent. Silver rings adorned his fingers. He had no other name and most emphatically no address, but he arranged things for people and appeared to thrive upon it in a scrambling fugitive manner. The other two people were Mr. and Mrs. Dawes. Mr. Dawes was an entirely negative person, but Mrs. Dawes shone by virtue of a high, whining, insistent voice, keyed to within half a note of hysteria. Then, at one point, the conversation suddenly took a peculiar turn. It came about through Mrs. Dawes mentioning that her aunt, who died from eating tin lobster, Used to work in a corset shop in Witch Street. When she said that, the agent, whose right eye appeared to survey the ceiling whilst his left eye looked over the other side of his tankard, remarked, Where was Witch Street, ma? Lord! exclaimed Mrs. Dawes. Don't you know, dearie? You must be a young un, you must. Why, when I was a gal, every one knew Witch Street. It was just down there where they built the Kingsway. Like, Baldwin Meadows cleared his throat and said, <coughs> "Witch Street used to be a turning running from Long Acre into Wellington Street." Oh no, old boy," chipped in Mister Dawes, who always treated the ex-man with great deference. If you'll excuse me, Witch Street was a narrow lane at the back of the Old Globe Theatre that used to pass by the church. Oh, "'I know what I'm talking about,' growled Meadows. Mrs. Dawes' high-nasal whine broke in. "'Hi, Mr. Booth. You used to know your way about.' "'Where was Witch Street?' Mr. Booth, the proprietor, was polishing a tap. He looked up. "'Witch Street? Yes, of course I knew Witch Street.' "'I used to go there with some of the boys "'when I was Covent Garden way. "'It was right angles to the Strand, "'just east of Wellington Street.' "'No, it weren't. "'It were alongside the Strand, "'before ye come to Wellington Street.' "'The coloured man took no part in the discussion, "'one street and one city being alike to him, "'provided he could obtain the material comforts "'dear to his heart. "'But the others carried it on, with a certain amount of acerbity. Before any agreement had been arrived at, three other men entered the bar. The quick eye of Meadows recognised them at once as three of what was known at that time as the Gallows Ring. Every member of the Gallows Ring had done time, but they still carried on a lucrative industry devoted to blackmail, intimidation, shoplifting and some of the clumsier recreations. Their leader, Ben Orming, had served seven years for bashing a Chinaman down at Rotherhithe. The Gallows Rings was not popular in Wapping, for the reason that many of their depredations had been inflicted upon their own class. When Meadows and Harry Jones took it into their heads to do a little wild prancing, they took the trouble to go up into the West End. They considered the Gallows Ring an ungentlemanly set, Nevertheless, they always treated them with a certain external deference, an unpleasant crowd to quarrel with. Ben Orming ordered beer for the three of them, and they leant against the bar and whispered in sullen accents. Something had evidently miscarried with the ring. Mrs. Dorth continued to whine above the general drone of the bar. Suddenly she said, Ben, you're a hot old devil, you are. We was just having a discussion like. "'Where was Witch Street?' "'Ben scowled at her, and she continued. "'Some says it was one place, some says it was another. "'I know where it was, cause my aunt had died from blood poison "'after eating tin lobster, used to work at a corset shop.' "'Yas!' barked Ben emphatically. "'I know where Witch Street was. "'It was just south of the river.' a four-year come to Waterloo Station. It was then that the coloured man, who up to that point had taken no part in the discussion, thought fit to intervene. Nope, you's all wrong, Captain. Which street We're alongside de church, way over where the Strand takes a sideline up west? Ben turned on him fiercely. What the blazes does a blankety nigger know about it? I told yer where which street was. Yes, and I know where it was. Interposed Meadows. "'You're both wrong. Which street was a turning running from Long Acre into Wellington Street? I didn't ask yer what you thought. Growled Ben. Well, I suppose I've a right to an opinion. You always think you know everything. You do. You can just keep your mouth shut. It'd take more you to shut it. Mr. Booth thought it advisable at this juncture to bawl across the bar. Now, gentlemen, no quarrelling, please. The affair might have been subsided at that point, but for Mrs. Dawes. Her emotions over the death of the old lady in the street had been so stirred that she had been, almost unconsciously, drinking too much gin. She suddenly screamed out, "'Don't you take no lip from him, Mr. Meadows, the dirty, thieving devil. He always thinks he's going to come it over everyone.' She stood up threateningly, and one of Ben's supporters gave her a gentle push backwards. In three minutes the bar was in a complete state of pandemonium. The three members of the gallows ring fought two men and a woman, for Mr. Dawes merely stood in a corner and screamed out, "'Don't! Don't!' Mrs. Dawes stabbed the man who had pushed her through the wrist with a hatpin. Meadows and Ben Orman closed on each other and fought savagely with the naked fists. A lucky blow early in the encounter sent Meadows reeling against the wall with blood streaming down his temple. Then the coloured man hurled a pewter tankard straight at Ben and it hit him on the knuckles. The pain maddened him to a frenzy. His other supporter had immediately got to grips with Harry Jones and picked up one of the high stools and, seizing an opportunity, brought it down, crash onto the coloured man's skull. The whole affair was a matter of minutes. Mr. Booth was bawling out in the street. A whistle sounded. People were running in all directions. Beat it! Beat it! For God's sake! called the man who had been stabbed through the wrist. His face was very white, and he was obviously about to faint. Ben and the other man, whose name was Toller, dashed to the door. On the pavement there was a confused scramble. Blows were struck indiscriminately. Two policemen appeared. One was laid hoar to combat by a kick on the kneecap from Toller. The two men fled into the darkness, followed by a hue and cry, Born and bred in the locality, they took every advantage of their knowledge. They tacked through alleys and raced down dark mews and clambered over walls. Fortunately for them, the people they passed, who might have tripped them up or aided in the pursuit, merely fled indoors. The people of Wapping are not always on the side of the pursuer. But the police held on. At last Ben and Toller slipped through the door of an empty house in Aztec Street, barely ten yards ahead of their nearest pursuer. Blows rained on the door, but they slipped the bolts and then fell panting to the floor. When Ben could speak, he said, if they cop us it means swinging. Was the nigger done in? I think so, but even if he wasn't, There was that other affair the night before last. The game's up. The ground-floor rooms were shuttered and bolted, but they knew that the police would probably force the front door. At the back there was no escape, only a narrow stable yard where lanterns were already flashing. The roof only extended thirty yards either way and the police would probably take the possession of it. They made a round of the house which was sketchily furnished. There was a loaf, a small piece of mutton and a bottle of pickles and, the most precious possession, three bottles of whisky. Each man drank half a glass of neat whisky. Then Ben said, We'll be able to keep Em quiet for a bit anyway. And he went and fetched an old twelve-bore gun and a case of cartridges. Toller was opposed to this last desperate resort, but Ben continued to murmur, It means swinging, anyway. And thus began the notorious siege of Aztec Street. It lasted three days and four nights. You may remember that on forcing a panel of the front door, sub-inspector Race of the 5th Division was shot through the chest. The police then tried other methods. A hose was brought into play without effect. Two policemen were killed and four wounded. The military was requisitioned. The street was picketed, snipers-occupied windows of the houses opposite. A distinguished member of the cabinet drove down in a motor-car and directed operations in a top hat. It was the introduction of poison gas which was the ultimate cause of the downfall of the citadel. The body of Ben Orming was never found, but that of Toller was discovered near the front door with a bullet through his heart. The medical officer to the court pronounced that the man had been dead three days, but whether killed by a chance bullet from a sniper, or whether killed deliberately by his fellow criminal, was never revealed. For when the end came, Orming had apparently planned a final act of venom. It was known that in the basement a considerable quantity of petrol had been stored, The contents had probably been carefully distributed over the most inflammable materials in the top rooms. The fire broke out, as one witness described it, almost like an explosion. Orming must have perished in this. The roof blazed up, and the sparks carried across the yard and started a stack of light timber in the annex of Messrs. Morell's piano factory. The factory and two blocks of tenement buildings were burnt to the ground. The estimated cost of the destruction was £180,000. The casualties amounted to seven killed and 15 wounded. At the inquiry held under the Chief Justice Pengammon, various odd interesting facts were revealed. Mr Lowes Palby, the brilliant young K.C., distinguished himself by his searching cross-examination of many witnesses, At one point a certain Mrs. Dawes was put in the box. Now, said Mr. Lowes-Palby, I understand that on the evening in question, Mrs. Dawes, you and the victims and these other people who have been mentioned were all seated in the public bar of the Wagtail, enjoying its no doubt excellent hospitality and indulging in a friendly discussion. Is that so? Yes, sir. Now, will you tell his lordship what you were discussing? Diseases, sir. Diseases? And did that argument become acrimonious? Pardon? Was there a serious dispute about the diseases? No, sir. Well, what was the subject of the dispute? We was arguing as to where Witch Street was, sir what's that asked his lordship the witness states my lord that they were arguing as to where which street was which street do you mean wych yes sir you mean the narrow old street that used to run across the site of what is now the gaiety theatre mr lowes palby smiled in his most charming manner "'Yes, my lord, I believe the witness refers to the same street you mentioned, though if I may be allowed to qualify your lordship's description of the locality, may I suggest that it was a little further east, at the side of the old Globe Theatre, which was adjacent to St. Martin's in the Strand. "'That is the street you are all arguing about, isn't it, Mrs. Dawes?' "'Well, sir, my aunt, who died from eating tinned lobster, "'used to work at a corset shop. "'I ought to know.' "'His lordship ignored the witness. "'He turned to the counsel rather peevishly. "'Mr. Lowes-Palby, when I was your age, "'I used to pass through Witch Street every day of my life. "'I did so for nearly twelve years. "'I think it hardly necessary for you to contradict me.' The council bowed. It was not his place to dispute with the chief justice, although that chief justice be a hopeless old fool. But another eminent KC, an elderly man with a tawny beard, rose in the body of the court and said, If I may be allowed to interpose your lordship, I also spent a great deal of my youth passing through Witch Street. I have gone into the matter comparing past and present ordnance survey maps. If I am not mistaken, the street the witness was referring to began near the hoarding at the entrance to Kingsway and ended at the back of what is now the Aldwych Theatre. Oh, no, Mr. Backer, exclaimed Lowe's Palby. His lordship removed his glasses and snapped out, the matter is entirely irrelevant to the case.' It certainly was, but the brief passage of arms left an unpleasant tang of bitterness behind. It was observed that Mr. Palby never again quite got the prehensile grip upon his cross-examination that he had shown in his treatment of the earlier witnesses. The coloured man, Harry Jones, had died in hospital, but Mr. Booth, the proprietor of the wagtail, Baldwin Meadows, Mr. Dawes, and the man who was stabbed in the wrist all gave evidence of a rather nugatory character. Those Palby could do nothing with it. The findings of this special inquiry do not concern us. It is sufficient to say that the witnesses already mentioned all return to Wapping the man who had received the thrust of a hat-pin through his wrist did not think it advisable to take any action against Mrs. Dawes. He was pleasantly relieved to find that he was only required as a witness of an abortive discussion. In a few weeks' time the great Aztec Street siege remained only a romantic memory to the majority of Londoners. To Lowe's Palby the little dispute with Chief Justice Pengammon rankled unreasonably. It is annoying to be publicly snubbed for making a statement which you know to be absolutely true, and which you have even taken pains to verify. And Lowe's Palby was a young man accustomed to score. He made a point of looking everything up, of being prepared for an adversary thoroughly. He liked to give the appearance of knowing everything.' The brilliant career just ahead of him at times dazzled him. He was one of the darlings of the gods. Everything came to Lowe's Palby. His father had distinguished himself at the bar before him and had amassed a modest fortune. He was an only son. At Oxford he had carried off every possible degree. He was already being spoken of for very high political honours. But the most sparkling jewel in the crown of his success was Lady Adela Charters, the daughter of Lord Vermeer, the Minister for Foreign Affairs. She was his fiancée, and it was considered the most brilliant match of the season. She was young and almost pretty, and Lord Vermeer was immensely wealthy and one of the most influential men in Great Britain. Such a combination was irresistible. There seemed to be nothing missing in the life of Francis lowes Palby K.C. One of the most regular and absorbed spectators at the Aztec Street Inquiry was old Stephen Garrett. Stephen Garrett held a unique but quite inconspicuous position in the legal world at that time. He was a friend of judges a specialist at various abstruse legal rulings, a man of remarkable memory, and yet an amateur. He had never taken sick, never eaten the requisite dinners, never passed an examination in his life, but the law of evidence was meat and drink to him. He passed his life in the temple, where he had chambers, some of the most eminent counsel in the world, would take his opinion, or come to him for advice. He was very old, very silent, and very absorbed. He attended every meeting of the Aztec Street Inquiry, but from beginning to end he never volunteered an opinion. After the inquiry was over, he went and visited an old friend at the London Survey Office. He spent two mornings examining Matt. After that he spent two mornings pottering about the Strand, Kingsway and Aldwych. Then he worked out some careful calculations on a ruled chart. He entered the particulars in a little book which he kept for purposes of that kind, and then retired to his chambers to study other matters. Before doing so, he entered a little apothegm in another book. It was apparently a book in which he intended to compile a summary of his legal experience. The sentence ran, The basic trouble is that people make statements without sufficient data. Old Stephen need not have appeared in this story at all, except for the fact that he was present at the dinner of Lord Vermeer's, where a rather deplorable incident occurred. And you must acknowledge that in the circumstances it is useful to have such a valuable and efficient witness. Lord Vermeer was a competent, forceful man, a little quick-tempered and autocratic. He came from Lancashire and, before entering politics, had made an enormous fortune out of borax, artificial manure and starch. It was a small dinner-party, with a motive behind it. His principal guest was Mr Sandman, the London agent of the Amir of Bacchan. Lord Vermeer was very anxious to impress Mr Sandman, and to be very friendly with him. The reasons will appear later. Mr Sandman was a self-confessed cosmopolitan. He spoke seven languages and professed to be equally at home in any capital in Europe. London had been his headquarters for over twenty years. Lord Vermeer also invited Mr Arthur Toombs, a colleague in the Cabinet. His prospective son-in-law, Lowe's Palby, KC, James Trolley, a very tame socialist MP, and Sir Henry and Lady Braid, the two latter being invited not because Sir Henry was of any use, but because Lady Braid was a pretty and brilliant woman who might amuse his principal guest. The sixth guest was Stephen Garrett. The dinner was a great success. When the succession of courses eventually came to a stop and the ladies had retired, Lord Vermeer conducted his male guest into another room for a ten minutes smoke before rejoining them. It was then that the unfortunate incident occurred. There was no love lost between Rose Palby and Mister Sandman. It is difficult to ascribe the real reason of their mutual animosity, but on the several occasions when they had met, there had invariably passed a certain sardonic byplay. They were both clever, both comparatively young each a little suspect and jealous of the other. Moreover, it was said in some quarters that Mr. Sanderman had had intentions himself with regard to Lord Vermeer's daughter, that he had been on the point of a proposal when Lowe's Palby had butted in and forestalled him. Mr. Sandman had dined well, and he was in the mood to dazzle with a display of his varied knowledge and experiences. The conversation drifted from a discussion of the rival claims of great cities to the slow, inevitable removal of old landmarks. There had been a slightly acrimonious disagreement between Lowe's Palby and Mr Sanderman as to the claims of Budapest and Lisbon, and Mr Sanderman had scored because he extracted from his rival a confession that, though he had spent two months in Budapest, he had only spent two days in Lisbon. Mr Sanderman had lived for four years in either city, Lowe's Palvey changed the subject abruptly. "'Talking of landmarks,' he said, "'we had a queer point arise in that Aztec street inquiry. "'The original dispute arose owing to a discussion "'between a crowd of people in a pub as to where which street was.' "'I remember,' said Lord Vermeer, "'a perfectly absurd discussion. "'Why, I should have thought that any man over forty "'would remember exactly where it was.' "'Where would you say it was, sir?' asked Lowe's Palby. "'Why, to be sure, it ran from the corner of Chancery Lane "'and ended at the second turning after the law courts, going west.' "'Lowe's Palby was about to reply when Mr. Sandman cleared his throat "'and said, in his supercilious oily voice, "'Excuse me, my lord, I know my Paris, Vienna and Lisbon, "'every brick and stone, but I look upon London as my home.' I know my London even better. I have a perfectly clear recollection of which street. When I was a student, I used to visit there to buy books. It ran parallel to New Oxford Street on the south side, just between it and Lincoln's Inn Fields. There was something about this assertion that infuriated lowes Parlby, In the first place, It was so hopelessly wrong and so insufferably asserted. In the second place he was already smarting under the indignity of being shown up about Lisbon, and then there suddenly flashed through his mind the wretched incident when he had been publicly snubbed by Justice Pengammon about the very same point, and he knew he was right each time. Damn Witch Street! He turned on Mr. Sandman. "'Oh, nonsense! You may know something about these eastern cities. "'You certainly know nothing about London if you make a statement like that. which Street was a little farther east of what is now the Gaiety Theatre. "'It used to run by the side of the Old Globe Theatre, parallel to the Strand.' "'The dark moustache of Mr. Sanderman shot upwards, revealing a narrow line of yellow teeth.' He uttered a sound that was a mingling of contempt and derision. Then he drawled out. Really? How wonderful to have such comprehensive knowledge! He laughed, and his small eyes fixed his rival. Lowe's Palby flushed a deep red. He gulped down a glass of port and muttered just above a whisper, Damned impudence! Then, in the rudest manner he could display, he turned his back deliberately on Sandman and walked out of the room. In the company of Adela he tried to forget the little contretemps. The whole thing was so absurd, so utterly undignified, as though he didn't know. It was the little accumulation of pinpricks all arising out of that one argument. The result had suddenly goaded him to Well, being rude, to say the least of it, it wasn't that Sanderman mattered. To the devil was Sanderman, but what would his future father-in-law think? He had never before given way to any show of ill-temper before him. He forced himself into a mood of rather fatuous jocularity. Adela was at her best in those moods. They would have lots of fun together in the days to come. Her almost pretty, not-too-clever face was dimpled with kittenish glee. Life was a tremendous rag to her. They were expecting Toccata, the famous opera singer. She had been engaged at a very high fee to come on from Covent Garden. Mr. Sanderman was very fond of music. Adela was laughing and discussing which was the most honourable position for the great Sanderman to occupy. There came to Lowe's palvey a sudden, abrupt misgiving. What sort of wife would this be to him when they were not just fooling? He immediately dismissed a curious, furtive little stab of doubt. The splendid proportions of the room calmed his senses. A huge bowl of dark red roses quickened his perceptions. His career? The door opened, but it was not Carter. It was one of the household flunkies lowes Palby turned again to his inamorata excuse me sir his lordship says will you kindly go and see him in the library lowes Palby regarded the messenger and his heart beat quickly an uncontrollable presage of evil racked his nerve centres something had gone wrong and yet the whole thing was so absurd trivial in a crisis well he could always apologise He smiled confidently at Adela and said, "'Why, of course, with pleasure. Please excuse me, dear.' He followed the impressive servant out of the room. His foot had barely touched the carpet of the library when he realised that his worst apprehensions were to be plumbed to the depths. For a moment he thought Lord Vermeer was alone. Then he observed old Stephen Garrett lying in an easy-chair in the corner like a piece of crumpled parchment, Lord Vermeer did not beat about the bush. When the door was closed, he bawled out savagely, "'What the devil have you done?' "'Excuse me, sir, I am afraid I don't understand. Is it Sanderman?' "'Sanderman has gone.' "'Oh, I am sorry.' "'Sorry? By God, I should think you might be sorry. You insulted him. My prospective son-in-law insulted him in my own house.' "'I'm awfully sorry. I didn't realise—' Realize. Sit down, and don't assume for one moment "'that you continue to be my prospective son-in-law. "'Your insult was a most intolerable piece of effrontery, "'not only to him, but to me. "'But I—' "'Listen to me. Do you know that the government were on the verge "'of concluding a most far-reaching treaty with that man? "'Do you know that the position was just touch and go?' The concessions we were prepared to make would have cost the state thirty million pounds, and it would have been cheap. Do you hear that? It would have been cheap. Barkin is one of the most vulnerable outposts of the empire. It is a terrible danger zone. If certain powers can usurp our authority, and mark you, the whole blame place is already riddled with this new pernicious doctrine, you know what I mean. Before we know where we are, the whole East will be in a blaze. "'India? My God! "'This contract we were negotiating would have countered this outward thrust. "'And you, you blockhead, you come here "'and insult the man upon whose word the whole thing depends. "'I really can't see, sir, how I should know all this.' "'You can't see it? "'But, you fool, you seem to go out of your way. "'You insulted him about the merest quibble. "'In my house.' He said he knew where Witch Street was. He was quite wrong. I corrected him. Witch Street? Witch Street be damned! If he said Witch Street was in the moon, you should have agreed with him. There was no call to act in the way you did. And you, you think of going into politics? The somewhat cynical inference of this remark went unnoticed. Lowe's Palbury was too unnerved. He mumbled, "Um, "'I'm I'm very sorry.' "'I don't want your sorrow. I want something more practical.' "'What's that, sir? You will drive straight to Mr. Sanderman's, find him, and apologise. Tell him you find that he was right about Witch Street after all. If you can't find him tonight, you must find him tomorrow morning. I give you till midday tomorrow.' If by that time you have not offered a handsome apology to Mr. Sanderman, you do not enter this house again, you do not see my daughter again. Moreover, all the power I possess will be devoted to hounding you out of that profession you have dishonoured. Now you can go. Dazed and shaken, Lowe's Palby drove back to his flat at Knightsbridge. Before acting, he must have time to think. Lord Vermeer had given him till tomorrow midday. Any apologising that was done should be done after a night's reflection. The fundamental purposes of his being were to be tested. He knew that. He was at a great crossing. Some deep instinct within him was grossly outraged. Is it that a point comes when success demands that a man shall sell his soul?' It was all so absurdly trivial, a mere argument about the position of a street that had ceased to exist. As Lord Vermeer said, what did it matter about which street? Of course he should apologise. It would hurt horribly to do so. But would a man sacrifice everything on account of some footling argument about a street? In his own rooms, Lowe's Palby put on a dressing-gown, and lighting a pipe he sat before the fire. You'd have given anything for companionship at such a moment, the right companionship. How lovely it would be to have a woman, just the right woman, to talk this over with, someone who understood and sympathised. A sudden vision came to him of Adela's face grinning about the prospective visit of La Tocarta, and again the low voice of misgiving whispered in his ears. Would Adela be just the right woman? In very truth, Did he really love Adela, or was it all a rag? Was life a rag, a game played by lawyers, politicians and people? The fire burned low, but still he continued to sit thinking, his mind principally occupied with the dazzling visions of the future. It was past midnight when he suddenly muttered a low, DAMN, and walked to the Bureau. He took up a pen and wrote, Dear Mr. Sanderman, I must apologise for acting so rudely to you last night. It was quite unpardonable of me, especially as I since find, on going into the matter, that you were quite right about the position of Witch Street. I can't think how I made the mistake. Please forgive me. Yours cordially, Francis Lowe's Polby. Having written this, he sighed and went to bed. One might have imagined at that point that the matter was finished, but there are certain little greedy demons of conscience that require a lot of stilling, and they kept Lowe's palby awake more than half the night. He kept on repeating to himself, It's all positively absurd. But the little greedy demons pranced around the bed, and they began to group things into two definite issues. On the one side, the great appearances. On the other, something at the back of it all. Something deep, fundamental. Something that could only be expressed by one word. Truth. If he had really loved Adela, if he weren't so absolutely certain that Sandeman was wrong and he was right, why should he have to say that Witch Street was where it wasn't? Isn't there, after all, said one of the little demons, something which makes for greater happiness than success. Confess this, and we'll let you sleep. Perhaps that is one of the most potent weapons the little demons possess. However full our lives may be, we ever long for moments of tranquillity, and conscience holds before our eyes some mirror of an ultimate tranquillity. Lowe's Palby was certainly not himself, The gay debonair and brilliant egoist was tortured and tortured almost beyond control and it had all apparently risen through the ridiculous discussion about a street. At a quarter past three in the morning he arose from his bed with a groan and going into the other room he tore the letter to Mr. Sanderman to pieces. Three weeks later old Stephen Garrett was lunching with the Lord Chief Justice. They were old friends, and they never found it incumbent to be very conversational. The lunch was an excellent but frugal meal. They both ate slowly and thoughtfully, and their drink was water. It was not till they reached the dessert stage that his lordship indulged in any very informative comment, and then he recounted to Stephen the details of a recent case in which he considered that the presiding judge had, by an unprecedented paralogy, misinterpreted the law of evidence stephen listened with absorbed attention he took two cob nuts from the silver dish and turned them over meditatively without cracking them when his lordship had completely stated his opinion and peeled a pear stephen mumbled i have been impressed very impressed indeed Even in my own field of limited observation, the opinion of an outsider, you may say, so often it happens, the trouble caused by an affirmation without sufficiently established data. I have seen lives lost. Ruin brought about, endless suffering. Only last week a young man, a brilliant career, almost shattered. People make statements without. He put the nuts back on the dish and then... "'In an apparently irrelevant manner, he said abruptly, "'Do you remember which street, my lord?' "'The Lord Chief Justice grunted. "'Which street? Of course I do. "'Where would you say it was, my lord?' "'Why, here, of course.' "'His lordship took a pencil from his pocket "'and sketched a plan on the tablecloth. "'It used to run from there to here. Stephen adjusted his glasses and carefully examined the plan.' He took a long time to do this, and when he had finished his hand instinctively went towards the breast pocket where he kept a notebook with little squared pages. Then he stopped and sighed. After all, why argue with the law? The law was like that, an excellent thing, not infallible, of course, even the plan of the Lord Chief Justice was a quarter of a mile out, but still an excellent, a wonderful thing.' He examined the bony knuckles of his hands and yawned slightly. "'Do you remember it?' said the Lord Chief Justice. Stephen nodded sagely, and his voice seemed to come from a long way off. "'Yes, I remember it, my lord. It was a melancholy little street.'" End of Where Was Witch Street by Stacy Armonier Recording by Peter Tomlinson